Welcome to the Journal of the Southwest Radio Hour podcast, a production of the University of Arizona Southwest Center in the College of Social and Behavioral Sciences. I'm Jeff Bannister. My guest today is Sally Marston, Professor Emeritus in the School of Geography, Development, and Environment at the University of Arizona, where she held the distinguished title of Regents Professor before retiring in May of 2021. Sally is the author of numerous influential publications in political and human geography and has mentored more than 50 graduate students, including myself. Her research and writing on the politics of scale have shaped how we understand this pivotal concept in the discipline of geography and in the social sciences more broadly. Marston's many creative research collaborations with other scholars, as well as with students, writers, and activists, give her research a rare combination of breadth and depth. She is a scholar's scholar, an innovative pedagogue, and a lovely human being. In this interview, I talk with Sally about the people, places, and events that have influenced her as a teacher and scholar, and about the innovative and highly successful community and school garden program that she and a group of collaborators developed and continue to lead here in the city of Tucson. Well, Sally Marston, welcome to JSW Radio. Great to have you. Yeah, nice to be here, Jeff. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, so uh, I definitely want to get to the school garden projects work that you've been doing uh, the last few years, but I want to ask you a little bit about how you ended up in the field of geography in the first place. God, yeah, that that's um, it's an <laughs> it's an accidental kind of situation. I. I ended up um, going to Clark University for my undergraduate degree, and I was interested in psychology, and it was a school that um, had a psychology degree that was very well well regarded, and I, I didn't really know what I was going to do after college. It was kind of not that time in my life or in anybody's life at that time. We were in the middle of the Vietnam War. Um, but I thought, well, this will be, this is something I'm interested in, and, and, and I think I'll do psych. So I did psych, and I, I took a class called Environmental Perception, which was uh, cross-listed uh, with geography. And I thought the class was fascinating. And so I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll just do geography too. So I double majored in psych and geography. And, um, and I ended up really falling in love with geography and kind of, I, I didn't forget about psychology completely, but I kind of put it in the, you know, on one of the lower shelves in my brain and and it has come back um, at various times but yeah that's how I got there is I, I I thought I wanted to be a psychologist I didn't really know what geography was um, until I got to college and then when I started taking the classes I thought it just it just gave me a broader range of subjects that I could be interested in and because of the spatial foundation of the discipline that I felt, oh, this, this, this feels better to me than psychology and not to kind of get rid of psychology, but just to put it aside for a bit and see how it might fit back in again. Yeah, I guess as a human cultural geographer, it's, it's kind of hard to avoid questions of, of the human or about the human psyche. Correct. Yeah, that's kind of what it was. And even, you know, when we get to the school garden stuff, you'll see that I've kind of pulled it back in again. And it has been a side interest of mine. But I, I don't, think I've ever really published on it until I started doing the school garden work. And so from Clark, then you, where did you end up? Did you go to California? I think you, I remember you saying. Yeah, I went to California after I graduated. So that would have been in 1974. 
And I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do, whether I wanted to go to graduate school. So I said, well, I'll just work for a year. And California seems like an interesting place to be right now. It was really interesting culturally with gay culture, with, you know, a much more permissive kind of social world than what I had grown up in with in Massachusetts, kind of really, really different. Um, and, you know, I just kind of want, I'd grown up in Massachusetts. I went to school in Massachusetts. I had relatives in California. So I knew I had a kind of soft landing I could do if I moved there and then I could, you know, become more independent after I figured things out. So I moved to California and, and, you know, I had a job in, in urban kinds of uh, issues, which was one of the things I had focused on in my undergraduate work. And I was able to get employment around that. And then, you know, after a few years, I said, I, I, I really miss um, uh, just kind of like thinking um, in a different way, solving different kinds of problems. And so I said, I think I'll go back to graduate school. I don't, I don't think I'm going to be happy until I have another degree. And, and so I applied for a bunch of places and I ended up at the University of Colorado. Part of my intention in going there was my advisor. I knew that there was a woman there and I wanted to work with a woman. As an undergraduate at Clark, I'd become both a practical and a theoretical feminist. And so it felt right to try to seek out somebody who was a woman, but also a feminist. And so I ended up going to Colorado. Um, and your work in, in Colorado was in, um, if I remember right, Hazards, right? Or so the master's, so, so my advisor got a, um, a National Science Foundation grant to look at, she's, she was interested in real estate. And she was interested in why people make the decisions to move where they move. And she was particularly interested in why people would move into active earthquake areas. And also why lenders would lend in places that had, you know, the, the significant potential to, to lose a lot of their, their um, real estate portfolio um, in California. So um, I was part of that. I was a research assistant on that grant and I traveled a lot in California then too. And it kind of appealed to me because we would, we would go into these offices of major, major, um, I probably couldn't even do it anymore in, in 2021, but this was probably in 1980, probably 83, 84. We, oh no, it was probably in 82. We, we talked to like the CEO of the bank of America. We talked to big people, about why, why they would do that. And, you know, we found out a lot of stuff about risk and, and the spread of a portfolio and things like that, but also that, uh, you know, obviously nothing surprising in some ways that people who are in those businesses take a lot of risks all the time. So they're psychologically kind of predisposed to take risks, but hedge that risk too. So mm -hmm. they, they have ways of, covering what could be quite damaging for the overall stability of their portfolio by doing other things. So that was interesting to me, but I was really interested in the state and the state's role in all of this. So, I mean, the federal government and the earthquake insurance kind of stuff and interested too in, in, in my master's thesis, how the state works with capital 
to ensure, and that I, I mean in the EN short, to ensure the smooth functioning of capital around these kinds of risky mm-hmm. investments and risky environmental investments. And interestingly, now the investments are even more risky when you think about climate change and the impacts that'll have on sea level rise, on um, global warming, you know, all of the fires that we've had in California, for example, et cetera. So it was um, the beginning of my interest in the role that the state plays in the economy. You know, I think that the question of the way that risk is socialized and that the state, of course, is is a kind of a primary node in that in that complicated process. It seems like there's a lot more awareness around that idea in this moment. I'm sure there is, you know, than when you were doing that research. Um, and yet, uh, of course, there's so much struggle around that idea <laughs> exactly. you know, to continue to be able to, you know, to continue privatizing profits, but to socialize the risk seems like in so many ways at the core of our questions around climate change that we're struggling with so much uh, politically right now. And California is a great um, example of it or a horrible example of it because of the fires and uh, people living in those areas that are fire prone. Exactly. Yeah, I think that. Um, it's only gotten more so that um, as capital kind of gets riskier or also as it it's reaching into more, I'm going to say, I don't mean literally uh, territory, but like financial territory to garner more and more profit, it's, it becomes more and more unstable, of course. And then the state has to be there to catch it when it falls, like too, too big to fail kind of mm-hmm. um, risky stuff. So. Yeah, it's true. And of course, I I didn't have that insight early on, but I did have an insight about how the state kind of facilitates risky behavior in a fundamental level. And it hadn't really been looked at in terms of kind of environmental stuff, like where do we where do we loan and what's happening in the places where we loan? Like, of course, this came from influenced by Gilbert White, who had done the National Flood Insurance Program which insured houses in floodplains, you know, like there was a lot of stuff that was going on around me as I worked as a, as a graduate student at the Natural Hazard Center and saw these kind of things going on. And so I kind of just took a piece of what she was doing and, and sort of spun it in a much different direction around political economy. So it just gave me an opportunity to, to learn more about political economy and to try to use a particular kind of case study to push that learning in a, in a direction that I could ground it so that I could understand it better. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like too, that what the sort of, that would have been the late eighties, early nineties, I guess that's when, um, you know, the time when David, David, a lot of David Harvey's stuff is, is getting mm-hmm. a lot of traction in geography and people are starting to really turn toward, toward questions of understandings of, or studies of how capital flows. And so, um, and you know how that shapes things like urban morphology, and then you kind of have this sort of recursive or iterative process between physical environments, capital flows, social movements, and you know, all these different things that geographers look at. And then that, so you're you took that the work you did there, and then you got a job at the University of Arizona. Uh, was that the well, early nineties? My, uh, my dissertation was really different. Mm. Um, and that was my master's thesis, the natural. Oh yeah. Okay. And then for my dissertation, I looked at political consciousness 
um, and how it emerges, uh, especially in, an, in, a, in a population that has a very different political history. So I wanted to know how uh, people who come from a background where they have ro a royal kind of leader, how they move kind of in their consciousness and their political sense of themselves to a different place when they migrate from being subjects, as it were, like subjects of the crown to being mm -hmm. citizens, which is, of course, you know, that tension that emerged between the colonists and the, the mother country, as it were, and how, in this case, Irish immigrants who have been colonized also, they how they leave that place and try to find a place for themselves in a new political environment and how they see themselves in that environment. How do they recognize themselves as, as citizens? And because, in fact, you know, the whole citizen, this was in the 18. 50s up through the 1870s. So from the 50s through the Civil War into the early 1870s, I, I looked at a population in an industrializing city and saw how capital and immigration kind of came together and what the politics uh, for that population were like. And in that case, I mean, in, in all those cases, I was influenced by theoretical work in the discipline of geography that was drawing from Marx or drawing from other theorists, Giddens, structure, agency kind of stuff mm -hmm. to understand what was going on in the minds of these people. And, and in some ways, if I were to do that dissertation again, I might, I might do it differently because I, I had to use secondary data for this. I used the most consistent kinds of archive I could find, which was St. Patrick's Day speeches were an interesting opportunity, at least in one case. But then I also looked at where the parades went and, and who paraded. And, you know, I, I identified what the kind of socioeconomic background was of these people. I couldn't know their religion. There were lots of Irish English in the in, in some of these migrations, and they were definitely they were definitely upper class, but then there were plenty of very poor Irish Catholics who came, et cetera. So anyway, the emphasis of that was to understand how they saw themselves and then how they then worked into their own kind of political groove in the context in which they found themselves. So I looked at that, the industrial city of Lowell, uh, Massachusetts, to, to do that. And I found that they they saw themselves in a hybrid way. Their political identity was one of recognizing that they weren't born American and born into citizenship, but rather were adopted into citizenship. And they had a vocabulary of adoption, adopted citizens, they would call themselves, that really did mark their relationship to the state, to each other, um, their, their aspirations and expectations for themselves, et cetera. So I then became, you know, I kind of went from the state to the subject went from my dissertation, my uh, thesis to my dissertation. And that political subjectivity is the thing that's kind of stuck with me, even mm -hmm. though, you know, I, 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 I taught year after year the state theory class. And every year I learned so much in that class, both from the readings that we would do, but also from the students in the class who had fascinating, just, you know, like, like your dissertation, how we're learning and exploring fascinating things about state formation. 
So state formation, subject formation, those things kind of have dominated my research and writing and all within the context of a particular kind of socio-spatial theory. What, um, what made you take that turn from your master's uh, research, to, you know, from the state to the subject? Well, I knew I didn't want to be a hazards person. It's a particular kind of geographer. And I didn't see, I didn't see where I could fit in, a, in the way that I wanted to and the kind of topics that I wanted to study. So I, I decided, well, I know how to do survey work for now. I know how to do survey data analysis. I should probably learn how to do something else. So I said, well, you know, I've always, I've always wanted to do historical research. So that, well, I'll just try that. And I've kind of gone methodologically, theoretically, methodologically, theoretically, again, throughout my career, just trying to try new things to see what I could know that I didn't know because of the last kind of um, study that I'd done or previous studies that I'd done. So learning documentary techniques, how to, how to find stuff, how to know how to narrow it to cover the kind of topics, the topic that you wanna cover, how to analyze it, how to learn those techniques for analysis, all that stuff was important to me, but it also seemed to fit for a person who was new to that to sort of take a population where I had a lot, I had enough data to kind of extract useful information from. Since lots of people would talk at these, there would be a long speech and then there would be responses. Mm -hmm. And they kind of stayed the same over a 40 year period until by the end of the 1870s, I went right to 1870. They started to become something different because so many of the people who marched in the parades or belonged to the mutual aid societies that were ethnic societies in that period, how they were moving out of those societies because they were, they were American born. Mm -hmm. and, and there was something about not being too Irish when you were American born because of the discrimination that Irish people experienced all the way into the twenties, I think in the United States in terms of employment and just kind of um, a general attitude in the society towards um, Irish people that emerged around like the Know Nothing Party, for example, which was very nativist and very anti-immigrant. And so they were negotiating, the, the immigrants were, uh, and then the, the first generation were negotiating changing contexts um, in which they found themselves and at first it was great. It was labor. They weren't really treated very well. They were, they were used to that. They were treated poorly by the British and they came to this country and they had more freedom and more opportunity maybe. Also, they experienced the same kind of discrimination. And then, you know, time marches on and the, the society started to diversify. But there's always been, in fact, this is a recent piece that I've been doing with Adrian Mulligan. There's always been this kind of, whiteness at the center of Irish Americanness, and that is at first not being considered white and then ultimately always always pushing for that recognition and whiteness in a kind of cultural sense not in a racial not in a racial sense so mm -hmm. like um, whiteness is a sort of um the baseline 
kind of or the cultural set of cult- cultural touchstones that um, become dominant, right? Right, right. So you see, you know, some been some remarkable, really interesting work done on cartoons during that period and how Irish people are always in these cartoons uh, pictured as as monkeys. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know that um, Nell Painter has done some really interesting work about some of the crossover stuff between that kind of discrimination and, and racism, for example. So, you know, I didn't notice that at the time. I wasn't that forward thinking. I saw it as respectability, like they were yearning for respectability, acceptance, recognition. They knew that they were considered beneath the Yankee population that they were operating in. But whiteness as a category never came up. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it took, it took a while in, the, in all of the disciplines for people to start recognizing the, the white supremacy that existed, not just in the South, but all over the country and in all kinds of insidious ways. Yeah, there's, I, we could probably go on on that topic forever. It's so interesting. Um, I was just thinking just briefly, I, I read this great um, biography of Frederick Douglas by uh, Yale historian um, David Blight, I think is his name. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Beautiful book. And um, one of the things that really stands out is this very question of, you know, kind of a, uh, the emergence of an American caste system. But also kind of what, I, what I'm thinking of also here is the, what you're talking about in terms of oratory, because I, uh, I, you know, it's easy to overlook how different human, the means of human expression were and the things that those means or media did to the ways people expressed themselves then versus now. So, you know, I, I, one of the things that struck me in reading his book is the, this, this whole idea that people could memorize hours of oratory <laughs> and just talk. You know, I mean, they had studied it and it wasn't exactly extemporaneous, but just imagine, you know, the ability to be able to do that. But one of the things that you just said that caught my attention is that, that people could comment on that afterward. And how did that get put into the, were there people taking notes on this or how did that all get into the rec- written record? So that's so interesting, that observation that you've made, because it, it didn't strike me at the time that what we were seeing was a kind of imitation as it were, of of a kind of um, ubiquitous practice of oration. And that these people, many of whom had no um, formal education after like the fifth grade, um, were learning to become adept at speechifying. When I said comments, maybe it was, uh, I was unclear there. First of all, the, the speeches would be recorded by a newspaper reporter. And they would show up in Irish American newspapers and, and also in some of the Catholic newspapers out of Boston, like the Boston Pilot. And they, so there would be a main orator who would be like the president of the Ancient Order of Hibernians or the president of the Irish Society or the Emerald Society or something like that. And I don't know, it wasn't clear from the, the historical record how they decided who was going to be the primary speaker or who would lead the parade. I'm sure there was conflict in that, but I I just couldn't find any evidence of it. That didn't show up in the record. But there was a reporter there and they recorded. I mean, you would see at the end of the the piece, you know, recorded by, um, reported by such and such. And so there would be 
you know, Jeff Bannister would be the main speaker. And then there would be subsidiary speakers who would respond to that speech or extend that speech or, you know, go in another direction. Um, so there was a lot of, it just people talked, not at tables, but they talked in to big crowds mm -hmm. as throughout the dinner. They would have dinner at a, at a, a pub or a, a hall of some sort. And they would invite local dignitaries to come, the mayor and other, other such people, maybe um, uh, an important doctor or somebody like that. And they would perform respectability. And part of that, I'm sure, was their oration. And, and that kind of yearning that comes out of wanting to be part of something and that subjectivity around this notion of we're adopted citizens. We came here, we chose this place, and we've been adopted by this country. So it was kind of like they didn't want to push too much. Mm -hmm. They pushed for recognition. And then by the time, you know, I said by the 1860s and the Civil War, um, and then after that, they were natural-born Americans, and so they didn't have to use that expression. So it was an interesting hybrid transitional form of identity and political subjecthood mm -hmm. that... I think they felt was effective. I mean, you can see that they do move more and more into the mainstream and eventually they're getting elected to be ward. You know, I mean, the whole machine politics stuff emerges around this time. Um, there's all kinds of interesting stuff that I didn't go into in the dissertation, but you can see a, a changed political landscape after the immigration of this group and how they came to see themselves as, as participants in a democracy. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, and ultimately getting into the presidency with mm -hmm. uh, with Kennedy, which, you know, now that I think about that, just listening to you talk about this, um, you know, that in many ways is akin to that moment, seems like it might have been akin to, you know, Obama getting into the White House mm -hmm. was in 2008. I mean, obviously different in many ways, but still there's some elements that are very similar there. I do remember, I mean, I was... And I was, I was young. I, I mean, I was probably fourth grader or a third grader, but I remember all the anti-Catholic rhetoric that surrounded that election. I mean, it's so complicated that it was Joe Kennedy, the father who was able to finance it. There's all, mm -hmm. all this history of corruption around that. You know, there's, they're all human beings and they're all uh, flawed and power seeking in their own ways. But the, I do remember the anti-Catholic stuff. And as growing up in a Catholic family, I, I, didn't, I didn't quite understand it. I mean, I suppose it's, it's a, such a mild form of prejudice compared to the other kind of prejudice that, that was, that's out there, has been out there, like racism mm -hmm. and sexism, for example. But it, it always just kind of struck me as, why would you, I mean, it's the same for Jews. Why would you think there's anything different about us just because we have a different religion mm -hmm. and as a recovering catholic i don't subscribe to any religion anymore but i do i i did find it as a child so mysterious like why do people think there's a problem with this i never experienced any discrimination directly myself but i know i know that my mother talked about it like you you couldn't marry and I remember one of my, my high school history teachers was Jewish and his wife was Catholic. 
he was he was excommunicated from his family for that. Oh so gosh. religion was very powerful segregator at that time, and it was internal segregation because of marriage, reproduction, like kind of the stuff that Sarah Smith pursued in her dissertation, where she was looking at the fear that Buddhists had that they weren't going to have enough Buddhists if their kids kept marrying Muslims. So it it, it persists today, and it's and it's terrible in all parts of the world, religious discrimination is, you know, obviously you know about these places, but in the United States, it didn't reach that, that kind of killing, didn't, it did in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Right. But I think in the United States, it was harassment and it was, there was violence, but not like a civil war kind of mm-hmm. that, that we see around the, around the world today. Well, to me, it just so speaks to this, this, what we're talking about here so speaks to the, um, I don't know how best to put this, the kind of, um, you know, the ongoing tension between subjects and the institutions that we find ourselves located in by virtue of birth and history and place mm-hmm. uh, and the struggle against those institutions or either that or how we end up just kind of reproducing them because we, <laughs> we fall in line, you know, to me, those, those are the kinds of questions that, um, I have always appreciated about your work. Uh, you know, they seem like they're front and center in your work and definitely have influenced me in my own research as your uh, mentee. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I can definitely say that that's a, you know, this idea of subjects and institutions is kind of front and center in my own work. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I could see. Th- you uh, you ended up in Tucson after Boulder, right? And is this you know this is the kind of the the broader context? It seems to me is a big cultural turn in in geography that's that's happening at that time, or you know, I mean, ongoing. But isn't that kind of around that time? Yeah. So for me, I was I was in the mix of it all, and and a move away from kind of structuralism towards a more kind of agent centered understanding of the world and. It developed for me around, um, again, around political consciousness, probably throughout the the time I've been been in Arizona. And that um, has been the political consciousness around different kinds of um, collectives that form. So for example, the neighborhood organizations that I studied when I first got to Tucson and how they see themselves and their territorial identities and their cultural identities, et cetera, and how they're pushing against the state for certain kinds of resources through to the work of, again, back to 19th century uh, gender kind of politics and the politics of urban transformation with progressive era women's organizations, which was the foundation for the piece on human geography. I'm sorry, uh, the social construction of scale paper, which has been the piece that I think has been most um, important to my own career. And then the follow-up piece with with, um, Keith and JP on human geography without scale. So balancing that theoretical interest with particular cases and trying to understand how the theory informs the case, what we can learn about theory. And what we learned about theory, I think, for me was I've always felt this tension between kind of globalization, globalism, and the specificity of everyday life, 
which is not surprising. It's a very feminist concern. And I was always pushing back against the globalization stuff and looking at specificity, like the context and how it produces particular kinds of political subjects and political action, resistance, whatever it is. And I was thinking about this the other day too. It really has been about that, that interest is carried into the school garden stuff. Um, I don't know if you want to go there yet, but, but the, the theoretical stuff has been of interest to me, but I've always wanted it to be empirically informed. Mm -hmm. And it came to a point, I think, in the, I don't know, it was probably like 10 years ago, 12, 12, 13 years ago, that I just started, I think this had to do with teaching also, but that I, I started to kind of turn in other directions in my, in my research again, still with the same themes, but, but looking at different kinds of manifestations of those themes in, in the place where I lived. And that's, that's how I ended up doing school garden stuff, also informed by a real awakening as an instructor, as a teacher, that I was working with a very different kind of student by what, 19, okay, I don't know, maybe like the late, the late 1990s into the mid 2000s that I had to change. And if I didn't change, I wasn't gonna be happy mm -hmm. in the classroom. And so I had, I started doing much more applied um, teaching where students were teaching themselves and teaching each other and also, it just felt better politically to do that, to sort of enable rather than just passively impart. Uh, impart. Well, that's a good way to put it, to enable rather than impart. And, and it's felt, I still feel, I feel like it's the right thing. It was the right thing for me to do. And it's made my relationship to my students so much better. And the, this way, I'm talking about my undergraduate students. Mm -hmm. And even to on a number of occasions, on a number of classes, I've had graduate students supervising undergraduate student research projects and really like they were their research coaches. And that felt even better, like everybody's learning in this environment. And the students are sort of seeing what it means to be a graduate student. So the undergraduates are saying, oh, I have this person and this person's guiding me and they're not, they're not a, a PhD yet, but they know a lot. I feel comfortable with this person because this person doesn't have the professor label yet. And so I don't have to feel intimidated. All that, all of that kind of teaching, I think, resulted in more satisfied students, better learning, better enacting of that learning, et cetera. Yeah. What was it about the, um, this, this is such an interesting theme, <laughs> just the, you know, the changing student body. Uh, uh, what was it about students that you were seeing that made you kind of come to this conclusion that you needed to shake it up? Yeah, that, that's really interesting. I wish I could say I know exactly what it was, but I, I surmised that it was different technology was shaping the way they accessed information, accessed learning of, of their own, and that you know, that romanticized version of the powerful lecturer, you know, like I grew up with that and I, and I relished it. Like I loved those teachers that I had at Clark who were just impressive in the classroom, just riveting. 
And, and I also love to read. And I think there came a point where reading happened in a really different way for, um, for young people and learning happened in bits and pieces uh, rather than in kind of long 60 minute lectures. Uh, it happened with a kind of, uh, well, anyway, my, my experience was that they weren't reading, they weren't prepared for class. Mm -hmm. They weren't happy in class. I could see that they were bored and that felt terrible. It really, I really felt like, whoa, I used to be able to really keep them all interested and I can't do that anymore. And maybe it's me, maybe I'm just like boring. Maybe I'm just a boring person now because I've been doing this for a long time, 20 something years at that point. And I really did seriously look at other uh, possibilities for myself. And then I, I thought, well, you know what? You're a researcher, just ask them. Why are they not doing what they should be doing? And I learned a lot from those conversations. They were unstructured. They were, I mean, I'm sure it's hard for students to talk because they knew that their grades might be influenced by this or they feared that that would happen. Of course, it, it would never happen. But they just said, we don't, we don't, we don't learn like that. We learn differently. We like we have short attention spans. This was kind of the moment when I discovered that literature on continuous partial attention in the psychology literature where it turned out that students could actually, well, they say that they don't really, they re, it's really not possible to do what they think they're doing. The, the multitasking thing? Yeah, the multitasking thing where they have multiple windows open and they're attending to four different things. I mean, I can't even listen to two people talk. That's all <laughs> I can't talk. either. <laughs> and, you know, like if the radio's on and somebody's talking to me, I have to turn the radio off. I, I learned in a very secluded and quiet environment and they're learning in an, an environment that has lots of noise in it. And I don't mean like, <laughs> like the landscapers outside. I mean, like there's a television going on and there's their phone is ringing and their mother's talking to them or their friends are calling or they believe, although psychologists say that they're not very effective at that, that they're, they can take in all this information. So then I just started to read what the brains, what their brains were like. <laughs> this goes back to psychology. And I said, oh, they, they really have different brains. Like my brain is like, it's like an old car, you know, it just can only go in one direction. And if you start feeding me from multiple directions, I have to stop the car and just like, listen, they can kind of keep moving through all of this and pick up, you know, enough to function, but not enough to thoroughly actually engage. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's okay. Sometimes that is adequate enough to kind of move forward with things. And, and so their brains and we know this, we've been told this when little kids started having VCRs in their house that, you know, you could get a five-year-old to, to figure out a VCR where, you know, that person's 75-year-old grandmother just hands the kid the, the remote and says, okay, you, you do it because I can't figure out what they're doing. <laughs> they had differently wired brains or their brains were becoming differently wired. And I had to be sensitive to that if I was going to feel happy about my own work in the classroom and also feel like they had little smiles on their faces when they were sitting in front of me. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, um, what did you, 
how exactly then did you change up? I know you said you kind of made it more um, uh, research-based inquiry with the students in the class in your classrooms. Um, did you bring in new media? How did all that? How did the change happen? It was a little bit of both in 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 multiple classes. So I'd always I'd always had the research methods class where I had them develop their own research projects and collect data. Um, and then have like a, just a little kind of analysis of what they found so that they kind of went through the whole process. So that had always been something that I'd done in the 357 research methods class. Mm-hmm. And like the American landscape class, I used to take them on field trips and that was great. They loved the field trips. But then I said, wait, wait a minute, why don't we make the backyard our laboratory and they do field trips on their own and they learn, they study something. So they would then in that class set up their own research projects. So I think the two that I remember, one, we just did Fourth Avenue. We did like a history of Fourth Avenue. And some students did like GIS Fourth Avenue, like what it, how you could look um, with GIS through time at Fourth Avenue um, when it started and through different periods. Another person did uh, the background to it wasn't La Indita. What was the name of the um, Guatemalan place that used oh, to? Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember it, but uh, I will if I don't think about it. I would um, just say too for those for people who who uh, for, for listeners who don't know Tucson Fourth Avenue is a how would you describe it a kind of an old um, retail district strip in the on, yeah uh, mostly Gantel. from like the sixties maybe it has a very sixties feel to it with the kind of shops that are there although it's now really changing and this place was started this restaurant was started by a Guatemalan refugee and the students did a kind of for that restaurant, they made a coloring book of the Guatemalan Civil War. And they had like ants for the people, they had ants for the military. They did it with a, with a Quetzal, is that, is that a bird? Oh, Maya Quetzal, that's the name. Maya Quetzal, yeah. okay, yay, thanks. And the bird, is, yeah, the national bird is the long-tailed, beautiful Quetzal bird. Yeah, and they made this wonderful coloring book that they, they did for the restaurant and they left it at the restaurant, but, you know, they were learning about migration. They were learning about connectivity between Guatemala and the U S they were learning about what happens to immigrants when they arrive in this country and how they get a toehold and all of that stuff. And then they produce this really lovely coloring book, for example, that was another one. And then another one did, there's a writer's retreat um, on fourth Avenue and they do, I don't even know if it's, you know, COVID has changed everything. And I haven't really studied Fourth Avenue um, because I haven't really been out from COVID um, that long. Uh, they did a video, a marketing video for them so that they could send that off to people who are interested in coming and doing writing. Nice. So they learned all kinds of cool stuff. I was so proud of them. Um, it really was a very satisfying thing. So that was the, that was the landscape class. And then for... Um, for an urban geography class, which I first taught to um, under uh, to honor students, we used The Wire, a six series television show um, by HBO, one of its most kind of famous and and awarded shows, to um, to teach political economy. I mean, to teach what would have what was always kind of a dry and difficult topic for undergraduate students. I would do the urbanization of capital with my students in the urban geography class. And you know, it's just hard for them. They don't, 
most of them don't do theory. And when I deployed theory in little chunks to them and made them responsible for concepts, like Sally was responsible for value versus price and Jeff was responsible for the reserve army of labor and you know all of the all of the ways that Marx talks about classical political economy in his own work they were asked to think about it in the wire television show and this was a collaborative undertaking with an, a graduate student in the program i did not do this on my own katie mean was the first graduate student that i worked with and then i worked with ian shaw in this class and it was absolutely delightful. The kids, the students in the class had not seen the show. Very few of them had. Some of the older students had. And they were blown away by it. So I would assign, we would assign two episodes uh, per class meeting. And they would watch four. <laughs> um, we would assign questions about the episode that were political economy related. Like, where did you see a manifestation of this concept or that concept? The the tests were take these 10 concepts and on and kind of like deconstruct a segment of the um, of the wire, a segment of your choosing in, let's just say, season two, that um, these concepts apply to and explain what was going on according to these concepts. So they were playing with stuff. They were watching something interesting. They saw it unfolding. They And at the end of, of the semester, we would put all the concepts together and just go around the room and tell a story to ourselves about the show. So, you know, somebody would, would start off with capital and they might say, well, what The Wire is, was about was the extraction of capital from a once thriving neighborhood. And what happened to that neighborhood was that property values declined, government institutions took it over and investment was made by government in those places in the form of high rise housing. It attracted low income people. And then they would pass it off to the reserve army of labor and the reserve army of labor would then populate that place with that concept. So it was just a really wonderful kind of start to finish. And everybody had their own expertise. They would report on and I would talk to them about when we'd see an episode, I would say something like, um, God, I can't even think of all the concepts anymore. Um, uh, a secondary circuit of capital, for example. So that would be our tertiary circuit of capital where someone, I would say, what do you see here in this episode about the secondary cir circuit of capital? And sometimes you had to coach, coax them through it. Remember what the secondary circuit is. You're the person responsible for it. Just tell us the definition. So all of us kind of understand what's going on. And then I would just say, ask someone to help you. If you don't know the answer, just ask the person in your group, what, what is this? And then, and then get rolling on it. So it's like a game show almost. Can I call, can I call my, um, my, somebody at home to help me answer this question? So it was a very effective class. And they all said at the end of the semester, I learned so much in this class. I, don't, I can't see the world. I can only see the world through this, this show now. And that's really changed the way I, I want to do my own life. I mean, who knows how long that sticks. But there was a moment where people, people recognized that they had a different way to look at the world than they did before they came into the class. Mm -hmm. Well, that's probably about the best outcome you could hope for as a <laughs> They all thought they were drug dealers. And
Um, so you had, uh, obviously you had a lot of momentum, um, moving in the direction of some real kind of communal learning and exper experiential education. So how did you, um, I mean, I guess I should say, it's not surprising that you picked up on, um, the school garden, school garden uh, projects, mm -hmm. but yeah, how did that happen? So again, credit where credit is due. It, it wasn't something I had planned on. It was an undergraduate student, Morgan Apicella, who had been in the wire class and said, hey, I want to do this um, independent study. Can I do this with you? Uh, Project Moore, which was a, a charter school within Tucson Unified School District, you know, a, a very particular kind of public school. It was for um, students who had basically burned all their bridges at other high schools. And it was their last opportunity to graduate, to get a high school degree. And so a lot of the students had drug problems or they had, you know, they just had trauma in their lives and they were encouraged with a different kind of learning there. And so he wanted to start a garden there with a teacher who had approached him. And I said, okay, you can do that, but we have to figure out like what's in this for you and how you're going to report back on all of this. And we did that. And, and then the food bank found out about it because I think a lot of the resources to make the garden at that school were supplied by the food bank, which this is early Obama, CPPW grants, which was um, communities putting protection to work, I think it, it was. I can't remember exactly what the letters stand for. But basically, it was money that came to the community um, in 2008-2009 for recovery from the, um, the, um, the collapse of the economy. Mm -hmm. And um, they, were, they were the recipients of a large grant, and they were putting gardens in to combat obesity um, in low-income populations. And so they heard about it and they asked me if I would do more. And then students heard about it and they asked me if they could do, be, be do independent study. So for the first few years, it was independent study class. And then it kind of had too many people in it to be an independent study class. And so I went to the department head and I said, this should be a class. And I think um, I can probably get 25 students and it will be um, an engagement class. This is before Ann Weaver Hart showed up on campus and had that engagement initiative. And, you know, this is what it will be. And we developed a syllabus and we met once a week, which is what we still do now for 90 minutes. And we trained the students to be able to support a garden in a school by bringing small groups of kids out for learning opportunities. We developed curriculum over time. We, we got a grant to train teachers. I mean, it started off as a class and it became a program mm -hmm. because the class then ultimately we, we've capped it at 60 students a semester and, and it fills up. And so we have to place 60 students in schools with school gardens. And now uh, the last report I heard, this is pre-COVID, was that there were 70 schools in an 89 school school district to USD that had school gardens. And part of that was the, an important part of that was the investment that TUSD made in, in garden-based learning by changing some of the food service personnel they hired, by collaborating with us directly. And it's been a really great marriage actually between the garden program, College of SBS, and um, the food services program at TUSD. And we've kind of reached out to other people in TUSD as well to support us. So now we have a team 
um, for the school garden program that has um, people from both USD and the university. And we not only send trained interns, 60 of them. Well, we didn't last year. Last year we sent 20, we had 20 interns who maintained gardens during COVID. And we hope with our fingers really crossed hard that we will be able to do um, in-person learning again. You know, that's what everybody's expecting or were, uh, they were expecting before the Delta virus raised its ugly head. Uh, we, we're hoping for that to happen. Uh, and, and in fact, I'm working right now on a proposal to the National Science Foundation to look at the effect that gardens have on resilience. And so what we would do is um, compare schools that have gardens and where kids have gone from pre-K to fourth grade, third grade not being in school, but now back in fourth grade, mm -hmm. and where they had garden experiences on a daily, on a weekly, if not a daily level, to schools that have never had gardens and look at the kind of um, adjustments that students are making as they come back to school and try to settle down for a classroom-based learning in one school and one set of schools and then garden-based and classroom learning in another set of schools. Um, and I think it's about social and emotional learning. It's about the impact that social and emotional learning has on child development and their ability to self-manage, to be self-assured, to understand uh, the difference between things just happen to me versus I have control over things and I can make good things happen. Mm -hmm. All of which were in, in seri under serious threat during COVID where you know, learning was by um, online and students could not often master the, even just the software to learn. So a lot of the confidence that was built up in school gardens, which we know from the literature exists, um, may have been eroded. We don't know, but what we wanna know is how long does it take to get back to that feeling of confidence that kids who learn in school gardens possess. So there's a psychological component to it. Um, there's a, just a kind of really profound social component, of course, because kids have been alienated from their teachers and their friends for a long time. So re-socializing with, um, which is a, such an important part of um, primary school education. We'll be looking at that as well. So it's, um, it's turned out that they're little subjects <laughs> and they have subject formation mm -hmm. as part of the way that they enter the world and part of the way we influence them in an institution that we have just been abandoning year after year for so long, especially for kids from low-income communities. You're talking about the institution of education, right? Of education, yeah. right. And, you know, the whole kind of architecture that's imposed on it, like standardized education and teaching to the test, all that stuff that we even saw on the wire, it, it's, in every, it's in everyday life. And so what is everyday life going to look like for these kids when they come back? What is it like for their parents? What is it like for their teachers and administrators? So I'm hoping that this proposal gets funded and we're able to say in a very um, statistically significant way, as well as ethnographically, how, how students, how gardens have affected um, kids' resilience, their ability to kind of bounce back from a really difficult year. Mm -hmm. And what you're saying is you're starting from a baseline of already knowing something about that question 
and school gardens pre-COVID, right? I mean, you right. could see that that these were the effects of students on students being able to participate uh, in these programs, right? Right. We know what they do produce, um, what the the impact of that space is for kids. Um, we don't know if it's long term. We don't know how resilient the garden um, experience it, um, allows students to be or enables students to be. So we'll be testing for resilience and there's nothing in the literature really about that. So that'll be a really helpful um, and we think powerful finding uh, for, um, for school districts, for policymakers to know that, you know, like where these kids are entering a world of uncertainty, climate change, species loss, economic recessions, uh, all kinds of Social injustice, racial injustice, social injustice, racial, all of that stuff that they're going to have to be able to ride the waves of. Mm -hmm. And we want to see how effective learning in a collaboration, in a collaborative environment, learning with non-humans, taking care of themselves and taking care of other creatures eating healthy, understanding where their food comes from, understanding the importance of a healthy environment, all of that stuff. So I think we, we have, we're looking for a one year kind of ethnography and of, of schools, of schools that have, have had um, gardens for a long time and schools that have never had gardens. Mm-hmm. Well, I wish you success with that inquiry. Cause I think it's, uh, <laughs> it just seems so critical. It's interesting to me too, that, interesting isn't even the word it's just remarkable that what you said 70 some odd schools out of uh, an 80 80 schools or so in the tucson unified school district have uh, taken up this program that is just i mean it doesn't surprise me in some ways because of what i know and love about tucson <laughs> as a community but still yeah it's 89 schools total and um we don't serve anyone any but title one schools directly with interns, just because they're just resource deprived mm-hmm. already. And so, some of those schools are served by TUSD food service and a team member of the community and school garden team. I just want to be clear that um, the CSGP is a collaboration with TUS, TUSD. So CSGP slash TUSD, if you want to say it that way, mm-hmm. community and school garden program and the Tucson Unified School District. So for example, some of them just have gardens and they don't use them very much. They harvest and they eat salad maybe once once every few months. Some of them have, um, we have trained through something we called the Green Academy, where we train teachers to use the gardens, to take their own kids out there and do it, or to at least be able to understand what's happening in those gardens when our interns take them out. But they have curriculum that other teachers, we've supported other teachers to develop that that fit a garden and that match common core standards or as close to common core as the state of Arizona gets. Mm-hmm. Uh, the state of Arizona has its own common core and that's the one we follow. Mm, got it, okay. Um, it, this might seem gratuitous, but I do wanna mention this because it's been a really important part of my career. And since I'm talking to you as one of my former graduate students, I feel like I have been incredibly lucky to learn from some super smart people, like students who like humbled me in terms of what they came to the program with. 
and, and then what they left with and what they left me with in terms of the insights they developed and the opportunities for me to learn from them and to be collaborators in their, um, in their education. And, and, and even later in the work that they are continuing to do. So I say that because you are one of my graduate students, but I also want to acknowledge that I might be just the only person that you're speaking to about my own career, but my career would not be what it is without colleagues in the geography department and other departments on campus. My, my collaborators in TUSD, my graduate students, even my undergraduate students who basically taught me that I didn't know what I was doing anymore with a group of undergraduates because I wasn't in sync with them. And so I learned something that really changed my life. It changed the way I thought about what the teaching endeavor was. It, it forced me to go look at literature that I wouldn't otherwise have looked at. And it, it gave me a very rewarding way to end my career really on an, up, on an up note with some pretty amazing undergraduate students too, who are eager to learn, who do want to be excited to be in the classroom. And so my graduate students, my undergraduate students, my, my colleagues, et cetera, we're all in this together. I know that sounds really trite, <laughs> especially around COVID, but we, it, is a, it is a group enterprise. And I have been very, very lucky to have wonderful colleagues um, in every manner that you can think about a colleague from undergraduate students to um, my colleagues in the, on the faculty at the University of Arizona and especially in geography development and environment. Well, that seems like a beautiful place to end this uh, interview, Sally. And I, and I will just say that, um, and I know I speak on behalf of all of my colleagues here when I say that it's totally mutual. <laughs> We're so grateful for you. And I, I'll just speak personally. I, I think all of the things that you're talking about, you know, your inquisitiveness and, you know, the, the relationships that you've had with students. I mean, all this stuff is so circular and, um, you know, you have kind of, uh, been able to benefit from what you've also put out into the world from what I can see. So thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful. Thank you, Jeff. And thanks for inviting me. I really enjoyed talking to you.